So I'm starting a series today that addresses why people are leaving God in the church. You ever think about that? I've talked to a lot of people like this. i talked to a lot of students like this, a lot of people, adults who've been in church and just say no more. I'm going to talk more about this next week, so if you want to come back, we'd, we'd love to have you. First of all, this is not intended as a series for people who leave one church to go to another. That's not what this is about. There might be some ancillary points for that, but that's not this. This is about those who leave God and the church altogether, and they just say, I've had it. I don't want to do any more of that. Now, the rate that this is happening depends on what survey you look at. One survey I read is kind of in the ballpark. This was done in 2017, and it said that people that went to church as a kid or high school, about 66% of them now drop out and don't want to have anything to do with it. Why is that the case? Why are there so many people? This is certainly a cultural phenomenon that affects every church. And perhaps even the COVID experience kind of gives people a, a convenient time to make a break. Now, in most cases, these uh, objections are representations of genuine experiences. So I think we have to take them seriously and listen with empathy. And frankly, I think there's a kind of an arrogance that could be associated with even making such a list because it's easy just to create a straw man and say, you know, just see how stupid those people are. That's not the intent of this at all. In fact, I'm wanting to say, we need to listen. We need to humble ourselves and just listen because I don't think that people are stupid when they do this. And I think that we have to acknowledge the pain. In fact, I think they got their finger on a very real problem in the church. <laughs> and so we have to be honest about that, right? So my goal is not to deny or, or put our head in the sand, but to point to the person of Christ and to point to the example that uh, the Bible gives on what the church should be because that is our goal. And in often cases, it's not representative of what we see today, in, at least in some cases. I'm not going to say the whole church. but So in Christ, we find the original pattern. And, and in the New Testament, we find that as well. And I'm thankful that at CCC, that I think it's on our hearts that that's what we're trying to achieve. So we're going to start off with a bang. I'll just get the heated one out of the way now, and then I can relax for the rest of the sermon. Here it is. Political affiliation is fused with Christianity. One reason that a lot of people are turned off by church. Political affiliation is fused with Christianity. In fact, as I get going, <laughs> I know there are going to be people that are going to be upset with the things I, I say, which is exactly the problem. Because a lot of times Christians care more about people's political stuff than they do about theology or what people say about Jesus. And it's like somehow our political candidate or party is sacred. That is the problem. People can't understand why, and this happens every election cycle, okay? Why many Christians support a leader who bears little or no resemblance to Jesus. I mean, if Christians have been quick to get on a political bandwagon or person, you know, when a few crumbs are thrown to evangelicals and then the representative fails to deliver 
or has little or no character that resembles Jesus or Christian values? Of course, this is done all the time. I mean, when a leader is unbecoming or offensive, many have difficulty calling he or she out. And you wonder, why is it that this person gets support from evangelicals? And so when this happens, people will say, man, that just stinks. Forget that. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And the unwillingness to call out, you know, moral flaws and be honest seems to convey that politics are more important than the Christian values. It's interesting that Jesus didn't seem to have a problem calling out political leaders, even when he could benefit from their favor, if at least they offered it. Uh, We read this, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Now, I don't want to dive deep into this passage because we don't have time for that, but basically the the context, just trust me with this, Jesus is talking about going, you know, the the narrow way and that there are some who think they're going that way and they're not, and the Pharisees don't like Jesus talking like this as if, you know, they've got this thing nailed down. You know, they know what their eternal destiny is, and he's like, ah, wait a minute. We can also doubt their sincerity in warning Jesus about Herod as if they really cared because, in fact, they wanted Jesus out of the picture, right? And so Jesus wasn't stupid, and he calls Herod a fox, and he's saying that Herod, he's sly, he's cunning. Again, not trying to compliment him. In verse 34, he says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Connect the dots. A fox loves to eat Chick-fil-A, okay? (laughs) And it's as if Jesus is saying, I'm not the one who should fear dying, but it's you who are unprotected, Since you are rebelling against God, and you will eventually prove to be expendable in the hands of a wily, cunning, political leader. And Jesus is blunt about this political figure. He never seems to be impressed with power or trying to throw his weight around or afraid to call a spade a spade. There's a story of Billy Graham invited to the White House by the newly elected president, Harry Truman. After having a brief conversation with Truman, Graham went to the front lawn of the White House with three of his friends, and they knelt on the White House lawn, making it look like they were praying as the photographer snapped the picture. Great publicity. And as the reporters gathered to talk to Graham, they asked him about the conversation, and he gave details of what was said between he and Truman. And this is from one of Graham's biography. We read this, and I quote, Truman was incensed. 
He was especially upset about Graham betraying the confidence of a private conversation, especially one involving personal matters. Not only was Truman furious about the incident, he was unsparing in his criticism of the 31-year-old evangelist. He called him counterfeit and accused him of being a publicity seeker, using others to advance his own fame. He made it clear that Billy and his team were no longer welcome back to the White House, and Graham was never invited back by Harry Truman at the White House. Now later, the two men did meet up at Truman's home in Missouri, and Graham apologized for his gaffe in 1950, and Truman graciously told him not to worry about it. Listen, if we are presented a case of striving to garner publicity, adoring a political party or candidate, and loving God and his precepts, and those three things are clearly at odds, may there always be a clear winner. I don't think I have to spell out to you which one that should be. Jesus or the apostles were not in the hip pocket of a political party. They were first allegiant to the kingdom of God. And I think a church that is healthy will have varying political persuasions and unity that is achieved in the midst of that. I'm certainly not saying that politics is evil. I'm certainly not saying involvement with politics is bad. But what is egregious is Christians who forget their ultimate calling and allegiance. Amen? Amen? Thank you, those three. The rest of you need to be convinced. All right. <laughs> Number two, none of the people in the church are my kind of people. It's too uncomfortable to attend. Talk to many students like this who say, man, that, I'm just not like those people. And they don't feel apart at all. And so people quit pursuing God or the church because people in the church seem so out of step, so different. I have an uncle who owned a bar, and then he came to Christ. Now, I can imagine attending church after that. That would feel like perhaps a foreign country. I mean, people aren't typically cussing in a church like they would in a bar, a new arrival at church may throw out a couple cuss words and get weird looks. And he knows quickly this is a different domain, right? So because of that, we are starting a new class to teach people how to cuss, and then <laughs> others can feel welcome. Amen. Amen. Figured you'd like that. We just need to be aware of how awkward it is for a new person. And I think that, that would be a big help. And more importantly, how about we just start with this? Love people where they're at and know that everyone is in process. Right? Don't start writing your own Bible, Bill, all right? <laughs> Now listen, kind of a, another train of thought here. 
You know, we can say race and economics don't matter to being welcome in a church, but imagine being a minority walking into a church or not fitting in because of maybe dress or maybe it's a congregation of professionals and you work at Dairy Queen. I mean, it's much easier to say, you know, those kinds of things shouldn't matter when you're in the majority, right? I mean, how did Jesus respond to stuff like this? Well, listen to this. This is an episode from his life. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners and Democrats and Cubs fans? And take your list, all right? There's all kinds of things you can add to that that people typically in the evangelical church, right? You know what I'm saying? Here's my first rule. If you don't tick off a lot of religious folks, you're probably not living the Christian life like it should be lived. That's rule number one. Jesus made it a point to relate to people that were different from his experience. And what was his experience? He was the best Jewish rabbi who ever lived, right? I mean, Jesus could have repeatedly maybe, you know, set up into the rabbi bar, you know, having philosophical discussions with his smoking jacket and favorite cigar, and that's where he hung out all the time, right? But that's not what he did. I mean, it's, it's much easier to hang out with folks that are like us, same color, same politics, same views, look cool, same economic strata, whatever it is that people feel more comfortable in. I'd like to submit to you that's not the model of Jesus. In fact, that, that moves us away, that kind of attitude more toward, now, I'm not saying you can't be comfortable with people that are like you, I'm not saying that, but we have to be deliberate in relating to others that aren't always like us. All of us like to be comfortable. Our kids like to be comfortable. It's much easier to enjoy a homogenous group. In fact, there was a very problematic church in 1 Corinthians 12 that was dealing with some of this. And we read in, the, in that chapter these phrases that the Apostle Paul was trying to weave in to show that despite all these differences, there are some things that are really are, are connecting you together. There's bone and sinew that, that keep this thing together, even though it might look like chaos at times. He talks about the same spirit being a part of one body in Christ. You know, people look different. They have different gifts different parts to play, and then there's kind of this pinnacle of the passage in verses 25 and 26. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So here's the desired pattern. We love well, 
in a very diverse body of Christ. We love well. Now, if we approach this from a more spiritual kind of connection with God, we read this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, that know is about a, an intimate knowledge. It doesn't mean that, you know, all Christians are going to love well. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that when you and God are rocking and you're close with God in fellowship with God, you're going to be loving well. Okay? So there's a direct correlation between your commitment and relationship with God and how well you love others. You can maybe interpret it and say, shut up about your love for God when you refuse to love people. I mean, there are people who are different in every kind of way that we know these differences. Political party, some wear masks, some don't wear masks, different colors, all this stuff. And we're getting bombarded with this. And your, your political view, if you don't have the right, you know, social media post to be in the right group and how you view some of these social issues, then you're cast out into the Netherland. There was unity with people who make you uncomfortable. You know, our kids had a season that they did not want to go to church. That's the problem if you're the pastor. And they felt they were just too different, uh, didn't feel apart, and they were teenagers. And so you assume at that point, being a teenager, perspectives need to be expanded. And it seemed clear to us that what was needed was wisdom for them and us, and not just a change in church geography. Here's my point. Could it be that love is best displayed during times of being uncomfortable? That this place is not about, you know, my individual security and happiness? I, I find that in the doing, but when I love well and follow God's command, it's sometimes uncomfortable, and God brings fulfillment from that. Let me submit that the natural thinking for all of us, not just a teenager, not just a child, is to be in groups where everybody's alike, and then you're going to be happy. That's what we think. But let me submit another option. Let's learn how to love well, especially from those who are different. Is that not more in keeping with the biblical model of love? Will that not enrich your child or you? Will that not contribute to a healthier body? Yes, it will. Where there's unity, not uniformity. You know, if every one of my friends were like me, we would be at the Cardinal Stadium three times a week and I'd eat ribs every day. Okay? But not Everybody is like me. And I have friends who have vast different likes and dislikes, political persuasions, and I think I'm better for it. Our challenge is to interact 
socialize, love well a varied community. And doing so puts our best foot forward as a body. Two things then, okay? We have this, I don't fit in, and uh, we have the political thing. People leave the church over this. This next one is a big one. Christianity is about faith, and I deal with facts and science. Church is simplistic and not for the sophisticated. Now, this reason actually has historical precedent. Rene Descartes was a 17th century philosopher who was famous for his line, I think, therefore I am declaration. Now, while this assertion may seem like some pithy philosophical statement, Descartes was declaring that his human certainty and knowledge was his own construction, a human construction. I want you to stay with me a second. This is not going to be a whole lot of philosophical jargon, but I think it's important for us to understand kind of the the birth of this. He could only be certain of his own existence unless he went through his own devised mental exercises to achieve that certainty. We could say it this way, that humans create the the rules and affirm the knowledge is true, they do that themselves. And that's not something that God does. That's for humans alone to make up the rules and acquire. What's interesting about that is that Descartes considered himself a theist. A theist is one who believes in a personal God. But he reasoned that that's a different kind of knowledge than this knowledge he was purporting of this certainty and standing up like maybe natural science and objective facts. That's not the kind of way that you achieve this knowledge of God. You do that by faith. Because God can't stand up to a healthy skepticism like natural science. So if God is to be maintained, you take this faith. A couple hundred years later, existentialism came on the scene, said that the idea of God was only something to be experienced, not something objective. Can't be affirmed by, you know, physical science, evidence, or observation. Now, this kind of mindset has really entered into the pathos of our culture, into the church, and I hear evangelicals left and right, that this is what they think. And so as a result, if you're really in with God, if you're really, you know, buying this thing about church, you're probably not as intelligent, you're gullible, you're simplistic, you're unsophisticated. And this portrays, now I gotta be honest, this is the case with a lot of faith communities. That is what they believe. And they just accept it. You know, there's science over here, we'll let the brainiacs take care of that, and then, you know, us simpletons over here will have faith and I'm okay with that. Well, I'm not sure I'm willing to give up the store and say that this is just for idiots. I'm not saying there aren't any, but I'm saying, I don't think that's what the Bible was conveying. I would submit that there was an approach that Jesus had that was quite different. He made the statement that we're to love God with all our heart, 
soul, and mind. I can love God with my mind? Really? I mean, this is the kind of faith that was encouraged by Jesus. I can be passionate, but also intelligent and rational. And that's the kind of faith that the earliest Christians were encouraged to practice. In fact, one of the writers of a New Testament book began his epistle this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Now think about this for a second. What you can see, what you can touch, what you can hear. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that empirical evidence is a part of Christianity, a part of the Bible, a part of faith? That is exactly what I'm saying. You know, empirical evidence, and that just means, you know, using our senses, is how a scientific hypothesis is tested. And John is saying, I am testing the evidence for Jesus Christ with empirical evidence. I mean, whenever we try to lump Christianity into all the other religions as just one of the choices of personal faith, might be true for you, but it's not necessarily true, you know, we strip it of its objective, unique qualities. Christianity is to be a faith that includes an intellectual component. I'm not saying that's all it is, and I'm not even saying that's how everybody is introduced to Jesus, because I don't think that's true. There are a lot of avenues in which people come to know Christ. It's not necessarily being just, you know, a careful study of things. It might be, you know, an emotional experience. It might be a relational thing. There's a lot of different ways. My point is simply this. You can love God with your mind. I think if I had the ability to rewrite Descartes' little pithy saying, I'd say this, I think, therefore I'm a Christian. Dr. Michael Egner was a leading brain surgeon, appointed professor and vice president of neurosurgery at Stony Brook University. He became an award-winning brain surgeon named one of New York's best doctors by New York Magazine. Egner realized that virtually all biological research operates on the presumption of design. Design. Wait a minute. If there's a design, there has to be a designer. And this led him to faith in a designer. And that led him to faith in Christ as the one who's designed human flesh. I'm just here to posit to you that Christianity, original source material, can be observed and verified. Now, I get that some Christians do not affirm this intellectual component, or they just give it lip service, and it's all emotional, okay? Now, that's not my gig. I'm not saying they're not Christians. I'm just saying, I want the whole toolbox, right? I want the whole experience. 
And I think we understand that our culture does not understand faith as something intellectual. I get that. But that is not Jesus. That is not the Bible. That is not how the early Christians practice their faith. I think there's a robust field of evidence that we can discover about Christ, his resurrection, his miracles, that is very encouraging. There are hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. There's the design of the universe. There's archaeological and bibliographical evidence for the Bible. There's the unity of the Bible and fulfilled prophecy. I am thankful that there is this kind of evidence. And that bolsters my faith to trust Christ even more. So listen, I know that there are people who give up on church and the idea of God because they don't fit in. Because I say there's too much politics. Because there's not enough intellectual heft. And frankly, they're right in a lot of cases with what they've seen and what they have experienced. But I offer you today that Jesus Christ is none of those things. He offers a relationship of community and meaning. And like I said, God uses a variety of ways for people to be attracted to him. It may be through the intellect, it may be through uh, an emotional or relational appeal. But the important thing is the destination. We realize that Jesus Christ is indeed who he claimed to be, the son of God and savior of mankind.